this is Jordan, and you're listening to the Code 7 Podcast Network. Warning. This episode contains the three A's of podcasting. Adult content, adult language, and awesomeness. You've been warned. Imagine being on the phone with your mother. You're scared. You answer her yes or no questions, trying to hold it together. You keep up with the conversation, but you wonder if you're going to make it through alive. Because across from you is your husband, who has you at gunpoint. Now imagine your 911, pretending to be your caller's mother as you attempt to get information to send help out. But as you are asking questions, you hear a gunshot, and the line goes dead. This is what it's like within the trenches. In this episode, you will hear stories from the I Am 911 movement, a movement I started to fight the reclassification of dispatchers from clerical to protective and bring awareness to the types of calls the 911 dispatchers answer on a daily basis. You will also hear two powerful stories from dispatchers out of Idaho and Illinois. Both of them have written and shared them throughout social media, and now you will hear them tell it on this podcast. Now, you heard the warning at the beginning, but I must warn you again and add that if you suffer from PTSD or have suicidal tendencies, you are listening at your own risk. The stories you're about to hear are all true and come from the dispatchers who lived them. While some stories have a good outcome, the majority are horrifying. This is our reality. Your worst day is our every day. So let's start with a bang. I want you to imagine each story. Become the dispatcher who has taken each call and imagine listening. I give you CPR instructions because even though you were a nurse, you needed direction and comfort when you found your two-year-old in a pool. I stayed with you for 11 minutes because you were in a rural area and we couldn't get to you any faster. You lost your son today. And I lost a piece of my heart. I am 911. It was a busy night. I was alone in the center while my partner stepped out for a bathroom break. He said he saw the two of you arguing. You sitting in the middle of the road. The next calls told me that you had been hit. Even with the language barrier, I was able to get that initial call entered within one minute. Yet, I will still forever question, if I had been just a second faster, would you have made it? And afterwards, not one person from my agency asked if I was okay. Not one. But a couple of days later, they held a debriefing on a waterline break. We have to find ways to care for ourselves in order to make it in this field. I 
M911. You were my favorite teacher. You were there for me in my toughest times trying to adjust to a new school. Your son was one of my best friends. I was there for you when your husband called saying you couldn't breathe. I could hear you gasping for air in the background. The next day, I receive a call saying you did not make it. I can still hear you gasping for air. I am 911. I spoke to your husband the whole way to the hospital, telling him to hang in there while I did CPR the day after Christmas. His heart started beating as we pulled into the bay. He was alive long enough so you could say goodbye. I went and paid my respects at the funeral home, and you stopped me as I was leaving quietly. You took my hand and introduced me as the angel who gave you the precious time to say goodbye. I am 911. I think of you often, and without fail, each year when the first flakes of snow fall. Your mother's voice when she called 911 to report you had run into the raging storm to find your dog hours prior, and now were missing yourself. I remember the enduring hours and days of radio traffic. I refused to leave my console, and when I did, I went to the scene to help search for you, only to return to work, the radio channel, again. We found you, days later, but far too late. Rest in peace, little one. Your memory lives in me every day. I am 911. You had only stopped to help what you thought was a stranded motorist. The driver didn't want to go back to prison, so he shot you. I dispatched through tears, telling your brothers in blue the vehicle description. The murderer shot another deputy 45 miles away. He made it. You didn't. I still feel guilty. You never made it home to your family. I am 911. I received a 911 call of a head-on collision with a man walking away trying to hide in the woods. The female driver was unconscious. I remember the officer saying over the radio, check for kids, she has two car seats. Then, 20 minutes later, the daycare called, asking about any accidents because a mother, who is never late, has not arrived to pick up her two children. I knew then that those babies would never see their mother again. I am 911. It was my last shift before I left on maternity leave with my first child. I answered the call and heard your screams when you found your horrifically murdered daughter in your basement. I will never forget the way you kept saying, My baby. My baby. I am 911. I remember you calling two days before, frantic and searching, 
saying, Your son stays out sometimes, but never two days. On the second day, I answered to you, screaming and pleading. You had found him crushed by a tree. And at 48, he still was your baby. You felt guilty that he went out there alone. And I've carried your voice with me ever since. I am 911. I took the 911 call for a motor vehicle crash rollover after T-Bone. Heard fire. Say, go to the red truck. He's the worst. Heard them say, CPR in progress. Remember telling my partner, I'm saying a prayer for his family. Fifteen minutes later, I find out the his family I prayed for was me. You were my father. And I watched you slowly leave this world. Thousands of what-ifs through my head couldn't bring him back. I am 911. I guided you through 10 minutes of CPR on your wife, who was eight months pregnant. When I found out neither of them survived, I stood up and walked out. It was six weeks before I went back to work. I am 911. You called me when your eight-year-old son had been crushed. Through your sobbing, I learned he was up above you, and his blood was dripping down upon you as you were helpless to get to him. He was just an innocent, curious child. I was only a year into the job, and I will never forget. I am 911. I was the one who answered your call the day you came up on a car accident that involved two kids. You were on a back road and told me they were not doing good. Once I figured out your location, I transferred you to the correct town. Five minutes later, you called back. I asked, didn't you already call, sir? Did something change? You replied, I don't want to watch a child die. Later that night, I got the call that changed my life. That child was my 10-year-old nephew that I had raised as my own. He died unseen. Those calls haunt me every single minute of every single day. I am 911. I was on the phone when your best friend was screaming at me to help. I heard your last breath. You cheered with my son. Yesterday was your anniversary, and I couldn't bear to see your family's pain. This will never leave my heart and mind. I'm sorry I couldn't fix this. I am 911. I was the first voice you heard after you accidentally shot your 14-year-old brother point-blank with a rifle while hunting. I talked you off the ledge, and we walked away from his lifeless body to the road one mile away 
to flag down the help I was sending. Five years later, I still hear your sobs. I hope you have found a way to forgive yourself. I am 911. I answered your 911 call. Daddy is hitting mommy again. Again, you hide. This time, under the kitchen table, behind the tablecloth. He sees the phone cord. He's found you. Again, I listen as you beg and plead with him to stop hurting you. Hearing your sobs and apologetic cries get louder each time his hands made contact with you. I just want to wrap my arms around you, protect you, take you out of your living hell. But I can only listen. Again. I am 911. I answered the phone the night your dad killed your mom and then himself. I will never forget you saying over and over that this was the worst night of your life. And then, the moment you told me, he was a police officer. My heart is forever broken for you and your siblings. You were a strong young man that night. I think of you often. I am 911. I was with you when you took your last breath. After a speeder hit you head on, I remember your family's cries as we cut your lifeless body from the tangled, twisted metal. I am 911. I had to lie to you when you asked me if I knew anything about your toddler while you were frantically driving home because I had just got off the phone with the postal worker who killed him with his mail truck. I'm so sorry. I am 911. I answered the call the night. You went to check on your friend and her two children only to find a car running and a hose stretched to the front window. I stayed on the phone with you until my unit arrived. I listened to your screams. My attempts at consoling you felt so feeble. Begging, if you could go inside, I urged you not to. I thank God you listened. No one should ever have to find a loved one like that. She killed her two children, then herself, that day. I am 911. I took the call from you as you screamed that your baby was blue and not breathing. I told you I had help coming and tried to talk you through CPR as you cried and screamed for your child to just wake up. I told you that I was right there with you. I could hear the officer come inside and take the child and continue CPR till EMS and fire got there. I remember hearing the phone drop as you continued to scream and cry frantically. I can still hear those cries today. I am 911. I was the last person you spoke to alive. I responded to your last transmission before you were executed with your own service weapon. 
I hope you know. I did everything I could. You lost your life. And now mine will never be the same. I am 911. We grew up together. And our families have been friends for years now. I didn't recognize your address when I sent the call, even though I sent a Christmas card there every year. Your newborn baby was not breathing. I feel incredibly painful guilt every time I see you, as if it is my fault alone that we could not save him. I lose sleep over it. I worry you are angry with me, even though I know we did everything. I don't know what to say, so I sometimes avoid you. I'm so very sorry. I am 911. I answered the phone the day you died. Your daddy hurt you, and your grandma called to tell me what he had done. I hoped it wasn't true, and I sent you all the help I could find. But we were too late. You were only two, and you deserved much more. I'll never forget you, or the things I heard. I am 911. The night I answered your call, I heard your screams for help. I was able to calm you down, and through broken breaths, you told me that you and your husband had an argument, and when you left the room, he shot himself in the head. When the responders arrived, I coaxed you to the front porch so the responders could work. And I stayed on the phone with you and chatted until someone could pay attention to you. I never quite knew how I would react to a call like this because my grandfather and my uncle committed suicide the same way. I am 911. I left because 15 years in, the PTSD and night tour had taken its toll. I hated going to work. I hated being at work, and it showed. I couldn't connect to family. I lost great friends. Going to work meant anxiety, stress, anger, and fear. And I did not hide it well. So I left. Now that I'm gone, all I do is think about my team, my officers, and my job. Nothing I do can fill the void. The promising new job with better money just isn't 911. I am 911. I pretended to be your mother for 45 minutes while your husband held you at gunpoint. I heard the shot fired, the glass break, and you scream you had been shot when the phone went dead. I tried to call you back so many times I had your number memorized. Later, I learned it was the sergeant's gunshot that rang out that night saving you and your children 
Nine months, I was removed from the console because I couldn't get rid of your screams. Eleven years later, and I still carry that night with me. I am 911. Last night, I finally experienced what it means to be a dispatcher. One of the first calls I got last night was a woman calling, crying, and terrifying because she found her friend overdosing in her basement. One of my first questions was, is he breathing? She soon discovered that he wasn't. So I guided her to give him CPR step by step, and at one point, he started breathing again. I felt like crying with her. I was so happy he was okay. My call, approximately 30 seconds after I ended that call, was for a woman who was home alone with her seven-year-old, and her water had broken, and she was having back-to-back contractions. I had to guide her step-by-step on how to prepare for the delivery of her baby. Luckily, paramedics got there right in time to help her deliver him. But after I ended that call, I sat there and realized that after six months of being a dispatcher, I finally connected with all of the I Am 911 stories I have read. I just instantly thought, wow, I really am 911 after those two calls. I am 911. At 7.15 this morning, the cafeteria caught fire. It is attached to our 911 center, right beside it, with their ventilation coming right into our center. As our center filled with smoke, some of us stayed to switch lines to the neighboring jurisdiction. When the switch wasn't going fast enough, our phones, as some of our co-workers left to prepare to evacuate to our EOC, a few stayed to continue answering phones because we can't let our citizens down. After this morning, watching my supervisor and a couple others stand in unison continuing to answer phones because our drive to serve the public is bigger than the concern of a fire next to our center, I will never understand how we are not considered first responders and equal to administrative staff. My team is the best, and I couldn't ask for a better group to perform my duties with. I am 911. Days like today remind me of how precious life is and how much this job can and does impact many of us in big ways. I could not be more proud of the compassion, love, and professionalism shown today by one of the dispatchers I am lucky to have on my team. It takes so much strength to push through some incredibly hard calls that hit home without batting an eye. And at the end of it, when you break, just remember, it's okay to not be okay. It reminds us that we are human. I am 911. Those are just a few stories from Imagine Listening, an extension of the podcast featuring the stories of the I am 911 movement. Next is a story out of Idaho. This is Diana's story, the dreaded call. 
You have no idea what is going through a 911 dispatcher's head as they are taking or dispatching an emergency call, unless you have sat behind that console and done it yourself. I have been dispatching on and off for 21 years in two different states. Policies change, computer systems change, phone systems change, bosses change, partners change, the cops and firefighters you work with change. But one thing that never changes are the thoughts that we have every single time your life is placed in our hands. Get the right address, don't forget the phone number, get the right answers, get the call in faster, push the right buttons, dispatch the right help, ask more questions, reassure the caller, get them medical instructions, please breathe, just breathe, please let me hear them breathe. Recently I took a call of a baby not breathing. It's the dreaded call the one nobody ever wants to take, the one no medic wants to respond to, the one that guarantees your heart will drop and your blood pressure will rise. I did everything I was trained to do. I gave the information. I dispatched the medics. I gave CPR instructions. My partners in the room did all the right things. I listened on an open line for a little bit after the medics got there. I heard them working on him. At one point, I heard a noise that sounded like a baby crying. My partner and I looked at each other at the same time, both of us with prayerful eyes. It was short-lived. The baby was gone. I hung my head and tried to clear the lump from my throat. I hung up the phone, took a deep breath, cleared my head, and took the next call. Because it's what I'm trained to do. My partners asked me if I needed a break. I told them I did not. And when I looked at them for a brief moment, their own stories flashed before me. Not too long ago, one of them took a call of a stabbing where a witness described in horrific detail what they were seeing. She also had a call where she helplessly listened to a man shoot and kill another man while on the phone. My other partner took a call several years ago from a lady who had been stabbed by her husband and was calling 911 from the trunk of the car he placed her in. The dispatcher's voice was the last voice she heard before she died. And that same dispatcher sat with the victim's children after the incident at the police department and got them stuffed animals and read to them until family could pick them up. She rocked them and played with them, knowing full well their mother was dead and their father was never going to come home. And then she went back to work. Yet dispatchers are not considered by some as first responders. Dispatchers are not thought of when it comes to things like PTSD. Dispatchers are not seen the same as the boots on the ground because they don't see a traumatic event. And if you don't see it, you must not feel it, right? If your hands don't get bloodied, then it's not real, right? After all, all the dispatcher did was answer the phone and send help. Easy. I will tell you this. There is nothing easy about it. We all react differently, but we all react. Some of us shut down. Some of us turn it off. Some of us cry. Some of us talk about it. Some of us relate. Some of us say nothing. Some of us seek help. Some of us don't. Whatever the reaction is, it's not easy, and dispatchers should never be forgotten. They should never feel like they don't matter. They should be considered your first, first responder because they truly are. They should be given the same retirement options. They should have the same training. They should be afforded the same resources as the cops and firefighters who get their hands dirty. 
And while many states like mine are fighting for that, there is still a long road ahead for the men and women who do this job every day. In the meantime, I implore you not to forget your dispatchers, not in debriefings, not in discussions, not in trainings, not in your comments, your thoughts, or even your praise. Because while the people answering your call may not see you, or touch you, or ever look you in the eyes, they hear you, and in your crisis, they will help you. They will be the first to respond. They will be the first to get you the right help, and your voice will be seared into their memories. Your story will be imprinted on their hearts, and I promise you that for years to come, they will think about you over and over and over again. The day I took my dreaded call, I went right back to work. It's how I cope. Like so many other dispatchers, we just go right back to it. I expected to feel down, but I also expected to keep plugging along. I expected I would second-guess myself, which is very common in my world. I expected the room would be still and quiet for a bit, which it was. I expected my partners would reach out, and they did. But what I didn't expect was a visit in my center from the fire crew that was on scene and who, like true heroes, tried to save that baby's life. There was no fanfare, no ticker tape parade. They came in together, stood before me, and asked if I had any questions. I really didn't in that moment, but I found a few to present. When they were done telling me what I needed to know, they asked me if we could all share a hug. I am not a huge hugger. I like my personal space. But when you are asked to be drawn into an area of comfort with people whose hearts are hurting just as much as yours, you stand up and take the hug. Because they get it. They understand it. And this group of guys did not forget their dispatchers that day when we needed it. They can't offer us a new classification they can't offer us benefits we deserve. They can't offer us early retirement. But what they can offer us, and what they did give us, was a sense that we belonged. They showed us we were an integral part of the crisis, and that day, and that we deserved to hear what we did was all the right things, even though the outcome was a nightmare. And because of that brief moment on a snowy afternoon, I will forever be grateful that they thought enough of us to check on us and offer what they could. I hope every dispatcher who needs that gets it. I hope every agency out there realizes how important this is. I hope every citizen sees that your dispatcher is also a hero, and I hope every dispatcher sees their worth. But above all, I hope you know we truly care. I hope you know how much we are affected by you and how much we think about you. I hope you know we are always going to do our best, get you help, keep our responders safe, and hold the thin gold line. We are always going to be the calm voice in your storm, and we are always going to wish you the best, and we are always going to pick ourselves up, wipe our tears, heal our hearts, and go right back to it. Our next story comes from Illinois. This is Corey's story. My suicidal call. The other night, I was working second shift as a call taker. It was an average shift, not much in the way of excitement or major incidents. About 30 minutes before my shift was over, I took a 911 call. 911, where is your emergency? A male voice that sounded sad and muffled said, I need help. I feverishly hit all of my alley buttons to bring up his location and asked him what the address was so I could send him help. He wasn't really answering me, 
All that I could hear was him crying. I kept pressing him for the address, continuing to hit my alley buttons, and finally his location popped up on my map and he confirmed the address. Yes, success. As I typed away in CAD, I asked him, What's going on there, sir? What kind of help do you need? He continued to cry and sniffled as he spoke. I just don't even want to be here anymore. My instincts told me that he sounded like he might be intoxicated, and what I understood that he's just told me is he wants to kill himself. I add that to my call notes and change the nature of the call to a suicide threat. Sir, what do you mean by that? Are you saying you want to kill yourself? He confirms what I asked and goes on to tell me that he's consumed a gallon of vodka. I thought to myself, yikes, that is a lot of vodka. While my conversation with the caller is taking place, one of my partners has shipped the call to deputies and another partner has started rescue for him. Meanwhile, I'm on the line trying to calm him down and reassure him that help is on the way. What's your name, I ask. We'll call him Bob. What makes you want to kill yourself? We ask in that specific way because it's shocking to hear. There's no fluffed up or fancy way of saying it because that shock sometimes helps people realize what they're thinking about and it may get them to change their mind. Kill sounds so permanent and violent, right? It's a terrible word, and let me tell you, phrasing it this way works. Bob goes on to explain to me that one of his family members passed away a couple of days before and that they were very close to each other. He feels abandoned. I can relate to him. I feel abandoned too, having lost my mom eight years ago. I use this feeling to identify with my caller and it aids in my line of questioning. I add what he's told me to the notes of the call because if it's not in the notes, it didn't happen. I could tell that Bob really wanted help. It's incredible how just a change in your inflection or tone of voice can turn a call around. Normally when people call and are intoxicated, they're angry or mean. Not this guy. He didn't want to die like his family members. Bob then tells me about how another family member died a few months back. Everyone's fucking dying around me, man. Even my dog is old and dying. Bob, I know you're feeling sad and I'm so sorry, I say. Death is really hard to process. Have you been able to talk to anyone about it? A pastor, a family member, or a counselor? Man, where are the units, I think to myself. It feels like it's taking an eternity for them to get there. Bob tells me that he can't talk to anyone. He has other siblings, but they don't have time for him. So I decide to prod a little more. Bob, have you told your other siblings how you feel, I ask? They might be feeling the same way and can validate how you're feeling. You're not alone in your grief. I know you're hurting. I can tell you that it will get better. It takes time, but it does get better. You have to talk to people. Keeping it bottled up does more damage than it does good. I hear sniffling in the background and he tells me, I know, I don't want to die. I don't want to be this way. You know, I just had open heart surgery a couple of months ago. I know I shouldn't be drinking, but man, people keep dying around me. Bob, I say, you've been given a second chance at life with that heart surgery. That's amazing. You need to live your life to the fullest. That second chance? Not many people get that. I'm sure your family that has passed wouldn't want you to waste your second chance. Yeah, you're right, he says. What's your name again? I'm Corey, I reply. Corey, you are so right, he says. You're an angel. You're just so nice. You know, I worked with teens and kids showing them how to help others through a nationwide organization. I did that. I'm a helper. I don't want to live like this. I know you don't, Bob, I say to him. That's why you called me. I'm so glad I was able to answer your call tonight. You did the right thing. Are they there yet? It feels like forever. Bob and I continued to talk a few more minutes. We chatted about his hobbies, his ailing dog, his family. I told him that he was brave. He knew he needed help and that we were going to get him the help he needed and wanted. He thanked me for being there for him. But in all honesty, he was there for me. This call reminded me of why I do this job every day. We can't save everyone, but the ones that we can, 
Those are the real gems. Mental health is vital to everyday living. Our consciousness guides us, and if it's clouded by things like grief, self-doubt, anxiety, or depression, it tricks us into thinking that this is what our life is destined to be, but isn't. Using meditation or prayer or music, exercise, art, whatever, to clear your head and center yourself is vital. We are tasked with people's worst days every day. Taking time for yourself is essential. This call in particular was one where I went home feeling pretty damn good. That doesn't happen often. Mostly, we second-guess ourselves and our decisions, wondering if we did everything we could to help or save someone. Did we dispatch fast enough? Were our notes clear enough? Did we do everything right? So many questions flood our minds with doubt and worry after calls, but when we get calls like these, or calls with good outcomes, we go home feeling good. Those days are just the best. I want to thank Diana and Corey for sharing their powerful stories. This is what the movement is all about. Stay tuned, as there are many announcements to come. There are some exciting things in development, and I cannot wait to share them with you. Thank you for the continued support and for listening. If you want to read and share a story you have written, you can email us at wttpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. That is at 911podcast. You can like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash within the trenches podcast. And you can also follow us on Instagram. This episode, along with all the others, can be heard 24-7 on Apple Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcasting app, and within the trenches.net. Have a good one, everybody. <laughs>